0: Well, hey, Hope City, it's great to be with you today. And uh, we are concluding our series, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We've spent the last five weeks looking at that everything that Jesus brings into our life, right, the simplicity of the good news of Jesus leads to a life where we are forgiven, where we are loved, we're declared innocent and righteous, we're able to do the right thing, we're spirit-filled. Man, there's, there's a lot to that everything, but it all comes from faith in Christ. And what we see, if we were to wrap up another way of saying it, is Jesus plus nothing equals wholeness with God. We see that shalom, we see that wholeness and that completeness with our God. And as this letter wraps up to the Galatians, we've been looking at Galatians written by Paul to the early church, and at the end of the letter, he begins to shift. The audience has, for this whole portion been focused on their relationship with God, that vertical relationship. How do I feel with God? I'm good. Now I'm whole with God. And now he's going to shift it and say, okay, let's start thinking horizontal. Let's start focusing on those relationships with other people. And so as he's taking this shift, I mean, you see that in in Galatians chapter five, verse 13 of chapter five, he says that you've been given freedom from the gospel, but he challenges them. What are you going to do with all that freedom? Galatians 5.13, he says, Do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Then you skip on to verse 14. He says, the, the greatest commandment, he reminds them of the greatest commandment, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. What is he saying? The gospel set you free. The gospel's made you right with God. You've got all this freedom and liberty and movement that you can take Well, don't use that freedom to indulge yourself. Use that freedom to serve one another, right? Don't serve yourself, serve others. And we have to remember who Paul's writing to. This Galatian church is not all sunshine and roses and rainbows and everything happy. This is a church that is divided. It is opinionated. It is confused about what is right, what is wrong, and what does Jesus say. It is hurting people in the process with their words and with their actions. It is allowing pride to lead them to this divided state. And he has to instruct them very simply in chapter 5. He gives them some very poignant instructions, very simple in, in verse 15. He says, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other see, again, not just this kumbaya type of church, is it? He's having to tell them, like, stop biting each other's head off. Stop devouring each other. Stop hurting each other. Stop being divided about these things. If we hit the pause button for a moment, how many of us would use those same descriptors to describe the current social climate we're in right now? Divided, angry, confused, opinionated, arrogant, prideful, I mean, just look at this last week or this last season that our our country has been in politically. Because whatever's happening politically and whatever's happening culturally within our context that we're operating in, guess what? It has trickled into the church, hasn't it? Right? And those same descriptors and adjectives can describe the local American church. And if you think about the last week, regardless of... How you feel about the outcomes of things and how the whole process worked and wherever you stand on that what you see as you step back is you see a people who are relationally divided and they are broken and i see very similar aspects between the american church and the galatian church in that regard and i think it is very timely that we are looking at this portion of the galatian letter i mean like who knew right yeah jesus knew that we would be doing this and it would be exactly when we need to talk about it, this idea of don't just get your focus on God and yourself, but now shift it towards other people. I mean, that's the beauty of the gospel is the gospel does change the way that we see ourselves. Think about that. The gospel gives us a Jesus-centered, Jesus-based self-image. If we don't have Jesus at, at the core of our self-image, we will have other convoluted self-images. Think of it. If we have a broken gospel or a, 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 a distorted gospel, that's works-based or culturally-based, we're gonna have a couple of different self-images. You're gonna see yourself in one of these two ways. One is you're broken and you're worthless. That's one way we're gonna see ourselves, right? If I've got a works-based theology, I am never good enough. So I am broken and I am worthless, and there is nothing I can do to make that right. I'm a screw-up, I'm never good enough, I'm a waste of space. And some of us, sadly, when we look in the mirror, when we think about our lives, when we look at our Facebook page, that's how we feel. I'm broken and I'm worthless. And then we can have a different kind of self-image. We could have one that says, I am not broken and worthless, but I am perfect and I'm valuable. I am amazing. I am God's gift to the world. Look at me, right? I do everything right and and I'm striving to be right. I work hard, I'm blessed, I'm amazing. I deserve this. I am perfect and I'm valuable. But Pastor Tim Keller, in this whole discussion of the gospel and gospel-based relationships, he challenges this idea of our self-image. And he says, you're not broken and worthless. You're not perfect and valuable. The gospel says you are both broken and valuable. We are broken people. We are fallible. We sin. We make mistakes. We need Jesus, right? The gospel shows us we need Jesus. This is a gospel-based self-image. I need Christ to die on the cross for me because I sin." I am broken, but I'm valuable because I am loved by God, and I'm so loved by God that He would send His Son to die for me. That's what the gospel tells me. So Tim Keller would argue, I am both broken and valuable. That's how the gospel can transform the way we see ourselves. It's a more authentic view of ourselves. It's authentic and it's it's accurate and it's humble and grateful. And that's the way that the gospel changes the way we see ourselves. Now think about it. Paul is now saying, don't just see yourselves that way. See other people that way. That's the challenge. Can I look at the people in my world and say, they're broken. They desperately need Jesus, but also they're valuable. Think about how different our culture would be right now if we began to look at people like that. Man, they are broken. They need Christ in the center of their life. They need the gospel in their life. But they are valuable, and the gospel is for them. And God loves them, and I love them because they matter to God, and they should matter to me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's really easy to say, right? Sitting here and thinking about church, and we're in this moment, and and thinking about, yeah, it's easy to say. Yeah, they're broken and they're valuable. But think about how we execute that, how we live that out. It's a lot more difficult, you know, And, and what happens is our relationships, they get messy and they get broken and they get fractured in these different ways. And so Paul has to encourage the Galatian church, and I think he's encouraging us as the American church, that there's some things we need to do here, right? And he gives them some warnings about these false equations that they can create, That they add to the gospel to foster good relationships, but in adding to the gospel message, they actually mess up their relationships even more. Galatians 5.26, he says, Do not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now, Paul is starting here with this word conceited, and and what this translates as is vain, uh, vainglorious, Or empty of honor. It's like we have this cup and and the only thing that we need it to be filled up with is honor and glory and affirmation and validation. And then I want to drink of this cup, right? Mm, I want to be recognized for my hard efforts and I want to be affirmed for everything that I'm doing. I want to prove to myself and prove to others that I am good. And so we become conceited. Another way we could say that is we become honor-hungry. And that leads to a competition within us, a a desire to want to do something to get that. And so what he's saying is, let us not become conceited. Let us not get hungry for that kind of recognition. Because if we do, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to become provoking and envying. And let's break that out for a second. Provoking. This is that idea of being competitive and wanting to pick a fight with somebody. You're confronting them in this way. My son does this right now. He wants to provoke me when I walk in the house. And you know what he does? He puts his little knuckles together, and he just slams them into my thigh. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to provoke me into an engagement with him, right? And he's doing it for fun, and he wants to wrestle and get pinned, right? And we're gonna gonna play and do that. But think about how we do that relationally. We provoke, and it's not out of fun, and it's not because I want to be around you. We do it because we think we're better than them, right? We kind of globo-gym this moment. I'm better than you, and I know it. So we provoke them out of this competition, this feeling of superiority. I'll give you an example, and it's a real fun one. Let's just talk about masks for two seconds, right? Already I've probably put some people on edge. But let's talk about masks for a moment. However you feel, if you're pro-mask or anti-mask, the reality is is that when you go into public, there is this opportunity for us to have a feeling of superiority. If you're pro-mask and you're walking into the store and you see somebody without a mask, you feel this desire within you, like, why aren't you wearing a mask? What is going on? What? what who do you think you are? You feel maybe you don't act like, I hope you don't act because like, that would be provoking, as Paul says. We're provoking something, right? But there's also that part of you that wants to do that. Now, if you're anti-mask, think we could feel that same tension, that same feeling of wanting to provoke because you're walking in public not wearing your mask and you see other people that are and you're thinking, what are you doing? Why are you wearing a mask? What are you, fear-based? What are you feeling about this? Why are you doing this? And there's this superiority that rises up. So you have both parties on the same issue feeling that tension, rising up with that aggression and that competition because they feel right, they feel better. And that's the thing that Paul's getting at here is that we become hungry for honor and then we begin to provoke one another because we think that we're better than them. We think we're superior to other people. And he's saying that we do this in spiritual matters. Oh, you don't pray like I pray. You don't worship like I worship. You don't look like I look. You're not as good. You don't measure up. And so, therefore, I am up here and you are down there. And we might begin to ask ourselves, well, why don't they do that? Well, they're just not as good as I am. And we begin to push, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do it that way? And why don't, you know? And we allow our spiritual practices to become this moment or this conversation of of provoking people. And what we're really doing is we're saying to them, I'm perfect, I'm valuable, I've got it figured out, and you don't. And so we poke, and we prod, and we push. But the other side of that, the other side of that is that we can envy one another. Well we want, what we don't have. We look at other people, and they, we desire what we think that we deserve, but somebody else has it. Right? I'll give you an example as you're scrolling through social media. Those of you that have social media, maybe you've felt this, this sense of envying one another. You're scrolling through, and you experience a sadness and a depression as you're scrolling through social media. And there's a real thing. Studies and science are showing this, that you can feel down about yourself because you're looking at other people's highlight reel. You're seeing their photos of what they're doing and what they have and how happy they are, what they're feeling. And you feel lesser because you don't have that. That's that envying within us, right? That we begin to look at other people and, well, I'm not living that way. I'm not that good. I don't have that. I don't feel that way. And so I am diminished and lesser. Provoking is all about superiority, but envy is more about diminishing ourselves. And Paul is saying that is happening within his churches as well. That they aren't always just superiority. There's actually this diminishing of what happens. And people are saying, well, I'm just never going to be that spiritual, Paul. I'm just never going to be that holy. I'm never going to be that good enough. And they're diminishing what God is doing in their lives. And so he's calling this out and he's saying, guys, you've been adding to the gospel message and you've made a a desire within the church that's all about recognition and honor and affirmation. And what has happened is you've created a false equation. You've created an equation that's Jesus plus comparison and it equals relational hierarchies. Think about that. Jesus plus comparison equals these relational hierarchies. Another way you could look at it is Jesus plus comparison also equals critical Christians. We become highly critical people and we create ladders for people to climb up. You will only be this good and we do that through provoking them or envying them. And it's all about being good enough. It's all about being recognized. It's all about feeling loved enough. And we're not aware that we're doing this, but that's the reality. And then you step back a little bit further and you see that what's happening is you've got Jesus plus judgment. You see, they're judging each other. They are criticizing each other. So Jesus plus judgment, and then what happens is you've got unhealthy churches. You've got broken relationships. That's what's fostered in here. Jesus plus comparison equals relational hierarchies and critical Christians, and then Jesus plus judgment equals unhealthy churches and broken relationships. And Paul wants to help them avoid this, right? That this isn't what the church is supposed to be about. This isn't what the gospel is all about. This isn't why Jesus died on the cross for the church. But actually, in our relationships, if we allow the gospel to permeate into the center of who we are and affect the way that we view people, we can experience not brokenness, but actually wholeness. And not corruption, but actually holiness. And so we can experience a holiness and a wholeness in our relationships. That's what we're gonna explain here. First, let's talk about holy relationships, this idea of being set apart, they're sanctified, they are pure, they're different than other types of relationships. Paul says this in Galatians chapter, Galatians chapter six, verse one. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also will be tempted. So we have to remember that, yeah, we are called to be holy people, right? We're to be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And Galatians shows us in Galatians 5 different ways that we can live that out. When we're filled and led by the Spirit, it leads to the fruit of the Spirit and godly life, and he compares that in Galatians 5. We talked about that last week. And so the gospel changes us, and there's that holy standard that we're challenged to and we aim for, and that is of Jesus, right? And yet, we're going to make mistakes, Paul says we're going to get caught up into sin. We're going to get detoured off of that path of holiness. And there are people in our life that are meant to help us get back into that path. He calls it or says to gently restore each other, right? That idea of restoring each other is this idea of the same Greek word that's used to describe resetting like a dislocated joint or bone back into its place, something that has gone off. Right? If you've ever been to the chiropractor, you can relate to this. Like you were running and playing sports, and then something popped, and you're like, ah, that hurts. I should not walk that way. And then you go to the chiropractor, and they take x-rays, and they feel, and they diagnose, and they lay it down, and then it's pop, 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 and they put things back, and they put it into alignment. Right? They are restoring you, Right, and your bones and skeletal system is restored, and there's that way of doing it. Now I've been to a few chiropractors over my life and some of them are very gentle and some of them are not so gentle. They're very aggressive, right? They grab, you're laying on the table and they grab your neck and it feels like, oh, this is gonna be nice. And then snap, they just like aggressively spin your neck and it's like, you're gonna Jason Bourne just snap me in half sort of thing. And they're doing this, snap! Or I've had them where they're like cross your arms and then they get on top of you and they like push and they're like lunging on top of you you feel your whole body like cracking. You're like, this can't be good. This feels aggressive and you're gonna hurt me. And then you have other chiropractors that are very gentle and calm and relaxed and caring and they use different tools and methods and they get the same outcome, right? but it was gentle, and that's a key word here when we're restoring, when we are in relationships that are all about restoring each other, putting us back into alignment, getting us back on that path towards holiness. It is done in a gentleness, not in a pride and arrogance and selfishness, right? Not in a provoking way, compare it back to provoking. It's not about that. It's not about comparison. It's not about I'm better than you. It's not about I know what's right for you. It is this gentleness that is humility, It is, I'm walking with you in this process. It's caring and nurturing in this way. Think about when we gently restore people, we're actually doing what Jesus did. Think about when he restored the adulterous woman. This woman is surrounded by people that want to kill her, and he restores her gently. He gently calls her out and lifts her up and recognizes her as a person, as a human being, and he He tells her, like, no one's here to point a finger at you. But then he also corrects her, and he gently restores her when he says, go and sin no more, right? That's all gentle. He doesn't get in her face and tell her everything she's doing wrong. And on the flip side, he even corrects the crowd of the angry mob, and he does so gently. He's not aggressive. He's not prideful and arrogant and getting in their face, pointing at, ah! What does he do? He just simply, he's drawing in the sand. He gets up, he asks a question. Hey, if you don't have sin. Uh, you know, you you can throw a stone, and they all just "Mm," disperse. He's gently correcting their thoughts and perspectives. So when we gently restore somebody, that's the way that Jesus did it, and that's the way that the gospel can lead us to. And we're leading other people towards that holiness. So Jesus plus nothing equals these holy relationships. You see, unlike other relationships where They maybe encourage us to sin. Yeah, just go for it, man. It's going to be great. Or they enable us in our sin. Yeah, this is how you do this, right? You should totally get into this. Or they excuse our sin, like, ah, it's not that big a deal. Don't worry about it. The gospel leads us to relationships that are rooted in holiness. Relationships where we can be honest with our sin. We can share our mistakes We can share those broken parts of us. They can encourage us to be better. It's about developing accountability. That's a word you sometimes hear in church. We have accountability where they know the shadowy, dark parts of our life. And they're able to help us walk along that journey. They're restoring us gently, pointing us back to Jesus. And we're not closed off. But I think in order to get there, we have to also feel that we can give people permission to do that. Who have you given permission to restore, to gently walk with you in that way? So they're not walking in this ambiguity. You're saying, man, would you would you call me out on this? Would you walk with me in this? Would you live in my life? And I give you this authority. I give you this influence. I give you this role in my life because I care about you in this way. And that we do it, again, because we care. And that's at the center of that, what you see is a holiness factor. It's not about doing it my way or your way. It's about doing it Jesus' way. It's about living out the gospel in this way, and we're restoring people to that. The other side of it is that there is a holy relationship, a different kind of holiness here or wholeness. These relationships are complete and lacking nothing. There's a health to them. Galatians 6.2, he says to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ that he's referring to is to love your neighbors yourself, right? That we end up serving one another rather than serving ourselves. And a way that we bring wholeness into these relationships is by carrying their burdens with them, caring for them, right? Not carrying them, but we're carrying their burdens. And you get this image as you, you talk about carrying each other's burdens. It reminds me of when you move. Have you ever help someone move and they're the only one there you're picturing like how did you expect to move the couch all by yourself like get it to the door and just push right and they got furniture and desks and boxes and appliances and all this stuff and i've been at some moves with people and it's like one person i'm thinking what no this is this is too much of a burden for you there is no way you were intended to be able to do this alone what were you thinking right? And, and, and I, I'm, I'm caring for them, and I'm compassionate for them, and I'm thinking, uh, we need some more people on this because we've got to get some more strength under this and lift this up. And that's what Paul's saying is, why are people going through this alone? They're carrying these burdens, these weights that are just weighing on them, sometimes very practical everyday things, things of parenting and marriage and, and, and finances Life decisions, they're just holding these things onto themselves and they're carrying and they're weighed down by these things. Some of them are more circumstantial. Maybe a tragedy hits, a life change hits, a moment of unexpected change hits them and they're weighed down by that. And what Paul is saying is that we shouldn't be judging them and we shouldn't be belittling them and we also, if we're in the bearing that burden alone, we shouldn't diminish that burden but we need help to carry that. And if we see people being crushed by that, being overwhelmed by that, he says, well, carry that burden for them. Stand with them. Lift, it's not a couch, it's not a desk, it's the burdens of life, the everyday stuff that they're going through. And if you're doing that, man, you're living out the law of Christ. You're doing the right thing. You're doing good. Because that's how God designed us for this wholeness and completeness. We're not supposed to carry that alone. And this awesome illustration that I think captures the heart of what we're talking about here. And it's this video of this little kid doing karate. And you see the people around him, the kids around him, that they do what Paul says. They carry his burden. Let's take a look. I mean, I love that video. It gets me a little teary every time I watch it. And I think what you see is this young man carrying this burden. He's embarrassed. He's shamed. He's feeling insecure. He's feeling a sense of failure. But the people around him help carry that. They encourage him. These kids are shouting his name and cheering for him and celebrating with him when they've accomplished it. Think about what that could look like in the church. What that could look like for Hub City Church as people are carrying these things. What could that look like is, man, just being present in people's lives. I found that when people are going through a hard time, just being there is huge. Listening to people is a way to carry that burden with them. Praying with them. We stop just talking and giving them advice, but man, let's seek Jesus together on this thing. Let's encourage people. Let's you know, be generous with people. Let's serve people. Let's celebrate with people. Think about what that would radically do to the church if we were caring for each other's burdens, carrying each other in this way where we're celebrating, encouraging, praying, listening, being present, all of this stuff. That's what the church can be. Paul is saying Jesus plus nothing equals a church of holy relationships holy relationships in this way because it's this picture of health and completeness you're not bailing because it got difficult you're not avoiding because it's awkward and uncomfortable we're not isolated because we are going through a difficult time we're not alone in our pain but there's a sense of wholeness and completeness that takes place and it requires connection like this is not possible if people aren't being attentive and aware and listening and looking for what's going on, if they're not paying attention to the emotional and physical and spiritual needs of the church, this can't be possible. And I think that paints a picture here. But, but I want to speak more importantly to the, or not more importantly, but more specifically to the people that fall into the category of when you're carrying a burden and you diminish that burden. I can't ask for help. I, I got to figure out how to do this on my own people that look at their burdens and they stay silent instead of asking for help. I want to illustrate for you something here. And it's this idea of asking for help with these simple bells. When you see a bell like this, right? And you see it on a countertop at 7-Eleven or at a hotel counter, whatever, you hit the bell when you need assistance, right? Ding, I need assistance. Ding, I need assistance. I need help with something. Now, I don't know if you've been in this situation, but there's times where I have, where I've seen that bell, I haven't seen an employee around, and there was literally that hesitation of like, uh, do I hit the bell? I, I want to hit the bell, but I don't want to make too much of a ruckus. I don't want to inconvenience anybody. I'll just stand here and quietly wait. I'll just, you ever feel that weird tension of like, do I hit it, do I not? Do I hit it, do I not? Ah! And then I'll sit, and then they come around the corner like, oh, hey, how's it going? How can I help you? I'm like, ah yeah, I need help. I think some of us, when it comes to the burdens in our life, We need to start hitting the bell. I need help with my marriage. I need help with my kids. I'm weighed down by my finances. I'm stressed about the sin and the temptation of my life. I'm overwhelmed by. We've Gotta start hitting the bell and asking for help and telling people like, I can't do this alone. Will you walk with me? Will you help me? Will you be with me? And we begin to experience the wholeness in relationship that Paul is talking about. Because we allowed people the space to come in and step in with us. You see, the simplicity of the gospel message shows us that we could be a church, that we could experience a church that is developing relationships of holiness and wholeness. Imagine that, where you're building friendships and relationships with people, not built on affinities and interests and just geography and proximity, but you're developing relationships around holiness and restoring each other gently to the holiness of Jesus. And you're built around wholeness, or not doing life alone, or with each other. And imagine, think about Paul's writing this letter to a divided church, an angry church, a confused church, a broken church, a church very similar to the American church right now. I saw on multiple occasions on Twitter this week Both Ed Stetzer and Kerry Newhoff, who were both pastors, tweeted this out, so I don't know who to give credit, so I'm going to give credit to both. They said, a divided nation needs a united church. A divided nation needs a united church. And I think we need to be contending for these sort of Jesus-centered, gospel-centered relationships that can lead to wholeness and holiness. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray right now for your church. Not just Hub City, but your church across the globe right now that is just hurt and broken and fractured. We pray for the wounds, God, of people right now that are just thinking about the pain that they've felt from other Christians, feeling judged and criticized. I pray that you would begin to heal those wounds, heal that pain. That you begin to restore your church in a unified manner, God, that builds people back up together. That we can experience what your word is describing, this completeness, this wholeness. We can experience a purity and a holiness, God, that you've designed and desired for your church because the gospel transforms us and it transforms our relationships. Jesus, we need you in our lives. We need you in our relationships. We need you in your church. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray, amen. For more information, check out thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.